uh, Bruce Lanfear. I'm a professor at Simon Fraser University. One of the things you were brought in to discuss today in the second second day of the second phase of the fluoride lawsuit was about your work on lead and IQ. Could you briefly summarize your involvement in that research? Yeah. Um, I first got involved with it more because blood lead levels had come down so much and my work had been focusing on finding ways to prevent lead poisoning but people sort of said there's no problem anymore. This was 1995 but in some parts of the country like in Rochester still one in three kids were lead poisoned and one in two African-American kids. So we knew that even though nationally blood lead levels were coming down, there were still hot spots. And so in part of my decision to get involved with lead and IQ research was to try to ask this question, are we really safe below 10 microgram per deciliter? And so that really led for the next, that kept me busy for another 10 years. And ultimately the World Health Organization, the CDC said no safe levels. For kids. Your, your research on lead and IQ is, um, is it accurate to say it's seen as sort of the, the gold standard or some, you know, it's seen as quality work in this area at the least, right? It's, yeah. it's been used by the EPA and others. Yeah, EPA, CDC, World Health Organization has relied on it. So it's uh, stood the test of time and it really is, um, I led it, but it was really a team effort. We had people 15 people from around the world who shared their raw data. And so it really was this international effort. And it was because of that, you know, people coming together, scientists coming together, that we could have the impact we did. One of the other topics that you were brought in to discuss is your involvement with what's called the MIRAC birth cohort study. Uh, could you explain to us what that relates to, uh, you know, as we're discussing water fluoridation? Yeah, well, it, just, just for background, MIRAC is, sort of like one of these second generation studies. The first generation studies would be where we enrolled pregnant women and children, we maybe measured lead or PCBs. The second generation study is really more about, look, if we're gonna be recruiting families and taking up all their time, there's all these other questions about pesticides and PBDEs and phthalates and bisphenol A. If we're gonna do this type of study, we really should explore many of these chemicals out there that we're concerned about. And so that was the purpose of Myrick. It was not specifically set up to look at fluoride. But when Christine Till approached me and said, I want to study fluoride, there's really at least four things you need to do a good research study. You need a good measure of exposure. You need a good cohort. You need a good outcome. And you need a really good hypothesis, right? You need all of those. And not, the MIREC cohort was sort of waiting there for us. And so I'd already been involved in it. And it was really a matter then of applying to uh, use some of the biobank urine and get funding. And that's how it sort of started with, with Christine approaching me. And then again, a team formed around it. And so how do we get to the point where in the lawsuit now that study and it's specifically its look on fluoride is playing such a major role where you're being brought in as an expert witness and uh, obviously much of the testimony the last two days has been around MIREC. Yeah. So the, the MIREC fluoride study wasn't the first study. Uh, we talked about uh, studies in China and India and then the meta-analysis that Philippe Grandjean did and then the group in Mexico, the element cohort they all preceded us. And so what we were trying to do is to say, okay, look at what's going on. And uh, so we took advantage of the Myrick cohort. What I think 
makes our cohort stand out a little bit is we had urine specimens throughout pregnancy. Uh, we were a population where roughly half of the sample was in fluoridated communities and the other half not. And so that set us up to really be in a good position to ask questions about water fluoridation in particular. But we've always framed it about fluoride from whatever the source, not primarily about water fluoridation. And what were the, what were the conclusions that Myrek drew related to fluoridation overall? Well, what we found, whether we looked at urinary fluoride from the mom as a measure of exposure or water fluoride or an estimate of fluoride intake during pregnancy, in every case we saw IQ deficits in the children. For the urinary fluoride, it was only for the boys, and that's raised some questions. Why only in the boys? And we can't explain everything at this point. It raises more questions. But the consistency across those three different ways of measuring fluoride and the consistency with other really high-quality studies has really raised questions about practices like community fluoridation. One of the other areas that you uh, have done some research, I mean, quite, I think quite a bit of research, and that was brought up in today's uh, proceedings, it relates to hypothyroidism. And um, I know that, that also Grand, Dr. Grandjean as well has done some work that was brought up, but could you speak to your work related to uh, studying hypothyroidism and uh, I think fluoride's impact on the thyroid? Yeah, so this was a study uh, that just came out in the past year. Megan Hall uh, led the study and along with Christine and the rest of the team. And what we found is that uh, women who are exposed to higher amounts of fluoride, especially if it's in the water um, or if it's a measure of fluoride intake, we saw an increased risk of those women developing hypothyroidism. Now, it didn't all happen during the, court, uh, the uh, course of the uh, study. Uh, some of the exposure likely happened before the women even showed up. In fact, many of them already came in with a diagnosis of primary hypothyroidism. But because they uh, were in those communities either with fluoridation or not, that seemed to predict why some of them, and it wasn't a small amount. Overall, there's about a 65% increase in hypothyroidism. But when we looked at women who uh, did or didn't have an antibody against the thyroid, about 10% of people have this antibody against the thyroid we saw that it was primarily in those without the antibody, so 90% of the population. And in that case, it was quite sizable, the increased risk. And so there's not many studies out there like this. There's one from England that's uh, more ecologic, but very suggestive of the same thing we saw. Uh, but it raises really important questions about a serious problem. Could you speak to some of the uh, concerns with the thyroid being affected like that? Uh, so what happens in terms of when somebody has hypothyroidism? Well, thankfully, there is a, a drug that's quite good. It's, uh, it's not perfect, but it generally will keep people in check. You have to, you know, when there's periods of stress or infection or pregnancy, it raises complicated. It, it makes it more challenging, kind of like insulin and diabetes. So it's not perfect, but it's a really good drug that's out there. Uh, and yet still it can, it can change things. And we still are trying to understand how much a mother having hypothyroidism will impact her child. It's probably not trivial, but we're still trying to understand that. Uh, even when somebody is on thyroid replacement, so it can make it it can make things more challenging for sure. Would you say that you um, 
that you agree with the conclusions of the uh, National Toxicology Program's draft report connecting, uh, we're saying there's an association between fluoride exposure and uh, lower IQ in children? Absolutely. I think I'd probably even go down to lower levels than they either did or were allowed to do. It's not quite clear how that played out. Uh, but I think there's enough evidence saying that because there's a linear relationship, we don't really expect that it only happens above 1.5 uh, milligram per liter or parts per million. Uh, it, that doesn't make any sense to me, given what we've seen with other toxic chemicals. Um, but I think overall, yes, it was a, it was a strong uh, analysis, a compelling report, and we really need to pay attention to it. And when you, what you, you know, to elaborate on what you were just saying there, so it's not that the impacts start at, you know, right at this, this point we can point to, but instead fluoride is a cumulative, it builds up in, in the body, and it appears that there are impacts well before the levels that, like you're saying, the NTP is, is admitting to. Yeah, there, there certainly is good indication from several studies, along with just more general interpretation of what we see with other toxic chemicals. I mean, we regulate non-carcinogens, chemicals that don't cause cancer but cause other kinds of toxic effects in humans. We regulate them as though there's a safe level, but almost all the evidence that I'm familiar with from things like air pollution and benzene and asbestos and tobacco and lead, they don't have a threshold. And, you know, even the National Academy of Sciences has called that assumption into question. Basically said, until you have evidence, we should not assume that there are thresholds. So it's really time to get rid of that. It's obsolete, that idea that there are safe levels of thresholds or chemicals. When we find evidence of a toxic chemical, it seems like there aren't thresholds, at least so far. Absolutely, like with lead. And that really should, that should really modify the way we evaluate and regulate uh, chemicals in the environment. So knowing everything that you just shared and you know, what people are going to be hearing from the limited reporting that is happening about this trial, what would you th suggest parents should know and or do if you have any specific advice to protect their children from the various exposures and the potential harms of fluoride? Well, I'd say that, you know, there is this new evidence about fluoride and hypothyroidism in women. Um, we don't have as much confidence about that. It seems to me we do have enough confidence, particularly if uh, we don't want to do harm, that we need to, to um, provide this information to pregnant women so that they can avoid fluoride, uh, not only during pregnancy, but when they're feeding their infant. Uh, there's no benefit to the teeth until they erupt, until they grow in kids. And so there's no benefit to the developing fetus. There's no, develop, there's no benefit to the infant. And so we need, at a minimum, to offer that as an option uh, for parents. And I think the other thing that I've learned over the past 30 years as I've been doing this research is that what we're finding, this new science on toxicity of chemicals, is too important to leave up to the policymakers and the scientists. We need to get parents and the public involved in making decisions about how we regulate these chemicals. One, one last question that is not related to your work on fluoride, but I was doing a little reading about you, and it seems like you uh, are a scientist that stands up and speaks out when you see what you might view as injustice. And 
I was reading that you had resigned from a particular board in Canada in the last year uh, relating to some conflicts of interest that you see related to the pesticide industry. Could you share a little bit about what that all entailed and what caused you to take that public step? Yeah. Well, it might not be a short story, but I'll try to make it short. Um, I was asked with about eight other scientists to serve on a science advisory committee to help the pest management regulatory agency be more transparent and to be more confident that they were protecting Canadians from pesticides. And when I first joined and read the terms of reference, basically how we were going to operate, very quickly I was, it was clear to me that it wouldn't work. Uh, for example, in the terms of reference, they said that we couldn't ask questions, we could only answer questions asked of us. So at that point I said, look, I can't accept this nomination. I was ready to step down. They asked me to stay on uh, until they revised the terms of reference and they uh, asked me to trust that it would be adequate. So I stayed on for about nine months, but when I got the revised terms of reference, uh, it basically said, yes, you can submit a question, and in two to three months, it might or might not be approved, and then you can bring it up when it's put on the agenda. Well, in the interim, I was asking several questions about things like glyphosate, right? We have new studies that show 80% of Americans are exposed to glyphosate, about 70 to 75% of pregnant women in Canada. So we had this evidence, and I said to, to the staff at PMRA, we have this new evidence before you've made assumptions about exposures. How do you take this new data, this new science into account? And they wouldn't answer. Um, when they asked us to evaluate how they approve and re or registrate pesticides, we said, perfect. Let's do something like chlorpyrifos or glyphosate where there are, there are questions. There's possibly mistakes that we could learn from. Where there's human data, uh, they refused. So in trying to help them become more transparent, to have more confidence uh, that they were protecting Canadians, it became clear to me that I couldn't help them. And in fact, I worried that by being on that committee, I might give the false impression that I was confident that they were protecting us. And the basic, the concern is not the staff. The staff are professional, they're competent. The problem is the regulatory framework is obsolete. It was based on assumptions that aren't true. And we keep finding year after year, these chemicals, these pesticides that we were told were safe, aren't safe. And so when you go back and look at how this all evolved, you realize that this idea of an acceptable level was a compromise. Yes, it's likely that some people will be sick, it's likely that some people will die from these chemicals, but we don't want to impede economic growth. And so some amount of sickness, some amount of death is acceptable. Well, this is a kind of question I think we need to put to the public. And if the public says, absolutely, that's the way we want to regulate chemicals, we don't mind if our kids are getting leukemia, um, we're, we're fine with that. Well, I'm not, but, um, but we need to involve them in those kind of decisions. It's not enough to tell them we're being, you're being protected, and then, at least from my perspective, 
to have clear evidence that that's not true. Have there been any negative impacts to your career that you're willing to share about for what you just talked about or speaking up about fluoride or any of these things, like w whether that means financial, professional, or just losing friendships, things of this sort? There's been a couple, <laughs> there's been a couple challenges. I was kicked off of three scientific committees during the Bush administration. That was when our studies were showing that there was effects on uh, IQ from lead exposure at the very lowest levels. Uh, and so I was kicked off the CDC lead advisory panel um, as an EPA science and research work group, and then a, a commission for environmental cooperation, which was really cool because we got to report to the ministers of environment in Canada and Mexico and the United States. So I was, I was kicked off of those. Uh, again, during the Bush administration, there was an attempt to uh, kill our children's environmental health center uh, study, and we lost funding from the center award, but we kept it going. Uh, it wasn't personally focused on me necessarily, it was an attempt to quash this kind of research because it's, it's, it's inconvenient, right? When you start showing, and some of these centers showed phenomenal impact of these chemicals on kids from air pollution, chlorpyrifos, from lead. We were really successful and that was scaring industry and industry had a role in how things get funded. And so not only were they trying to kill that, and that got revived, but that was during that time period, but then the National Children's Study got killed. Uh, and that was supposed to be a very large study. And Francis Collins basically killed it uh, in order to preserve his focus on genetics. Since 2012, the Conscious Resistance Network has been an independent media organization focused on empowering individuals through education, philosophy, health, and community organizing. We work to create a world where corporate and state power do not rule over the lives of free human beings. Our motto is leading by example and helping others in their pursuit of freedom. Visit theconsciousresistance.com to find our articles, documentaries, interviews, podcasts, books, and more. Remember, you are powerful, you are beautiful, and you are free.